Chapter Five of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Case. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Five. The Secretary of State and Mrs. Redmond stood at the door of the ballroom to receive their guests. Without, a fine white mist fell steadily. The street was wet and slippery, with the light of many carriage lamps reflected on its shining asphalt, and coachmen swore roundly as they huddled on their boxes, sullen lumps of misery, while across the park and down the wide avenue the east wind hurried breathlessly. Within, Persian rugs and rich hangings glowed in the radiance of many lights. The air was moist and warm, and heavy with the scent of roses. While up the wide staircase and through the spacious rooms surged the endless stream of humanity. One always sees the people one wants to see at Mrs. Redmond's, don't you know? remarked a gilded youth of Washington when asked why he never allowed a previous engagement to interfere with his acceptance of her invitations. And his argument was admitted as sound. The secretary was tired. For what seemed to him an interminable period, he had been exchanging polite inanities with one person after another. Fat women melted into thin women. Gray-haired men replaced callow youths. Statesmen stepped upon the skirts of debutantes. Diplomats followed one another in quick succession. And still they came. The secretary wondered vaguely whether he looked as bored as the man who announced the guests, and felt a sympathy for him. "'The Chinese minister and Mrs. Chang!' shouted that factotum, and the little lady tottered along on her useless stumps of feet in the wake of her burly lord and master. A round spot of bright red paint on either cheek, and a large yellow chrysanthemum over each ear. Mrs. Chang, in her gorgeous oriental dress, and speaking her pretty broken English, was a welcome addition to all social functions. Monsieur Dupre had arrived in good season, and now stood where he could command a view of his hostess unobserved by her. It was Monsieur Dupre's theory that when any one of his senses was pleasantly affected, it should be gratified as often as possible. Therefore he meant on this occasion to indulge his eyes whenever practicable. "'Does she not surpass herself to-night?' he exclaimed rapturously. "'Is she not superb? "'And then her jewels. "'Mon Dieu, her jewels!' "'And indeed, Mrs. Redmond justified his enthusiasm. "'Her white satin gown was cut with a severity of style "'well adapted to display her graceful figure to the best advantage. "'An arch of diamonds spanned her dark hair.' supporting a crescent of flawless opals which radiated rays of fire with every motion of her head, while a string of diamonds encircled her neck, one large, curiously shaped opal forming a pendant which alternately glowed and paled upon her white throat. About her waist was a girdle composed of close, flexible links of dull gold heavily studded with opals, each stone being set in diamond points. Mrs. Redmond's jewels were the envy of her feminine acquaintances, but the priceless opals were the wonder and admiration of all Washington. "'How hot it is!' 
observed a dowager in purple satin to one in black as the rooms filled rapidly. My dear, returned the other confidentially, I assure you that nothing in the world but the fear of disappointing Isabel lured me from my chimney corner tonight. These crushes are most unsatisfactory, don't you think so? Isabella looks extremely well this evening, remarked the first speaker pleasantly. She is quite the prettiest girl in the room. Now I had to pilot my niece through four seasons, one whole administration, before I got her settled. But I fancy you won't have the same experience. Well, I don't know, was the doubtful response. This is her second season, and neither Isabel nor her father seem to realize the importance of an early and advantageous marriage for a girl. My dear, I often say to her, as time passes, your roses fade and your chances grow less. By the way, interrupting herself hastily, who is that being presented to her? Two pairs of gold lorgnettes were leveled upon the unconscious man as he bowed to Isabel and carelessly straightened the flower in his buttonhole. I think, said she of the purple satin with renewed interest, that it is the Honorable Cecil Lyndhurst, one of the new British attaches. A great catch, my dear. Second son, old baronial estates, title in prospect, and all that sort of thing. Isabel could not do better. Indeed, said the careful aunt thoughtfully. Indeed. The lorgnettes were dropped, and fans resumed. The secretary begins to show his age, don't you think so, Mrs. Chesley? said the purple satin, dexterously concealing a yawn. He looks tired, but Mrs. Redmond is as fresh as a daisy still. The difference in years is very marked tonight. My dear Mrs. Layton, replied Mrs. Chesley acidly, I hear she once made her own living. I think she was abroad with some family as governess, or maybe it was companion, when he first knew her. Now I'm sure you are wrong, Mrs. Chesley, interrupted Mrs. Layton eagerly. I have it on good authority that she had gone to Germany to study music, and that it was her playing which first attracted him. Was it? said Mrs. Chesley indifferently. Well, anyway, he married her over there and brought her home. He was then in the Senate, you know, and I remember that there was a good deal of disappointment among the mothers about it, quite naturally. We have so few eligibles in Washington. And the fans waved slowly to and fro as the conversation drifted into other channels. Miss Isabel Bird, although in her second season, was still suspected of attending balls simply for the pleasure of dancing, and the fact that she was often obliged to divide her favors spoke volumes for her popularity in a city where dancing men were at a premium, and hostesses frequently driven to the verge of distraction to provide expectant damsels with even an occasional partner. She was merely a thoroughly healthy, happy American girl, ignorant of care or responsibility, and had never in her life lost an hour's sleep except when she had the measles. Why should she not enjoy every moment of her existence? Thank you, said the Honorable Cecil Lendhurst, as the waltz ended. It was delightful. Yes, wasn't it? It's the floor, you know, returned Isabel naively. There is not another like it in all Washington. The Honorable Cecil adjusted his monocle and gravely considered the waxed floor. 
"'If I should find you a chair in some quiet corner,' he suggested at last, "'would you take pity on my ignorance and point out a few people one ought to know?' "'If the chair proves comfortable,' said Isabel, laughing, "'I should probably be very obliging. "'Ah, this is nice.' and it was undeniably cosy in the recess behind a tall palm, where a small divan loaded with pillows offered an inviting surface for the weary to rest upon, while a mantle backed with ferns and red roses presented an effective background for a slender form in a white frock. Also, one could command a fine view of the ballroom with its glittering panorama of handsomely gowned women and black-coated men, which the British attaché scrutinized with a good deal of interest. "'Well?' inquired Miss Bird suddenly. "'What do you think of us?' "'Collectively or individually?' returned the Honorable Cecil, quite unmoved by the abruptness of the query. "'Both.' "'Individually you interest me very much. Collectively I have not had time to form an opinion. I only arrived at the legation yesterday, and my chief brought me here tonight.' "'We will probably be very nice to you,' returned Isabel." We're awfully polite to diplomats as a rule. Now, she continued, leaning back comfortably, ask me some questions. I am all prepared to be instructive. First, he said, after a comprehensive view of the room, who is the impressive old lady in black looking this way with such interest? That's my aunt, Mrs. Chesley, said Isabel, laughing, and she is talking to my father, Senator Byrd. I will present you to them both after a while. I have no other relatives here, so you can be as unguarded as you please. They both laughed a little, and Isabel continued, a scarcely perceptible motion of her fan indicating the person of whom she spoke. Miss Stone, the Chicago heiress, she is naturally in great demand, so you must lose no time in meeting her. Of course I shall be charmed, he returned politely. "'But there is no need for undue haste, is there?' "'The minister from the Netherlands. "'I don't know why he always seems surrounded by a halo of romance,' "'said Isabel, interrupting herself. "'He is certainly most commonplace. "'But I always think of him as very interesting. "'I suppose it is the name. "'The Netherlands sounds so fascinating somehow.' "'A rose by any other name,' he quoted, smiling. The Russian ambassador and Count Vladimir, one of the new attachés, resumed Isabel. I see you know them already. Count Vladimir and myself were stationed at our respective embassies in Berlin at the same time. We also both happened to be on duty in Paris later on. It must be delightful to have lived in such a number of places and to meet so many interesting people, said Isabel enthusiastically, and then to know all sorts of state secrets and be mixed up in international controversies must be positively thrilling. It has both advantages and disadvantages, Miss Bird. That is Mrs. Redmond talking to the Russian attaché. Is she not lovely? exclaimed Isabel, after indicating several other personages of note. Mr. Lyndhurst adjusted his eyeglass critically. He had been obliged to pass on with a hasty glance when presented, owing to pressure in the rear, and felt a natural curiosity as to the appearance of his hostess, who now turned, as though in response to his desire, and walked towards them, her hand upon the arm of Count Vladimir, and her jewels gleaming under the electric lights. 
Miss Bird rose and closed her fan. "'Will you take me to my aunt?' she asked. "'We have been here quite too long, I fear.' But her companion did not reply. He was watching the white train of Mrs. Redmond's gown disappear into the conservatory opposite, and on his face was the incredulous expression of one suddenly confronted by the impossible. The dim light of the conservatory and the cool green of the many palms offered a restful vista for eyes wearied with the glitter of the ballroom, and the splash and ripple of a small fountain replaced the music of the band most acceptably. The Russian attaché indicated a divan, comfortable with many pillows. Madame is tired, he remarked. It is weary work receiving people, especially with the American custom of shaking hands. Another cushion at your back. So. Mrs. Redmond leaned against the cushion and contemplated the point of her slipper. Her eyes followed the pattern of seed pearls embroidered upon it, and she afterwards remembered that there were twenty-six small beads in each flower, and one large one. The conservatory was empty except for themselves, but through the curtained door came the hum of conversation mingled with strains of music, and shadows of passing figures fell dark upon the white marble floor. The air was heavy with the scent of blooming plants and oppressive in its moist heat. Mrs. Redmond smoothed her long white glove until not a wrinkle remained. "'Well?' she said interrogatively. Her companion broke a leaf off the plant nearest him, and slowly tore it into bits. "'I received the roll of music, madame,' he said at last. "'Many thanks for your trouble. "'It was not, however, quite complete. "'Indeed?' "'The translation was lacking.' Consequently, the song itself is to me pointless. In fact, madame, it resembles a lock without a key. You are apt in your similes, Count. He stooped to pick up a cushion which had slipped to the floor and replaced it carefully on the divan. Might I venture to trespass further on your kindness, madame? He said quietly. I should much appreciate the translation. I am interested in the folklore of all countries, but their dialects are puzzling. Will you come to my assistance? The last notes of a waltz died away with the lingering sweetness peculiar to some melodies, and the conservatory was suddenly alive with the voices and laughter of dancers who eagerly sought the cushioned seats judiciously placed in the dimly lighted seclusion of remote corners or conveniently large palms. The secretary, laboriously escorting a stout matron towards the supper-room, passed so close to his wife and her companion that she might have touched him by putting out her hand. "'Oh, no, Mrs. Layton,' he was saying in evident reply to her interrogation. "'I don't carry my diplomatic burden with me always. Even a peddler is free from his pack sometimes, you know.' "'But such heavy responsibilities,' murmured Mrs. Layton vaguely. "'I try to leave them at the department,' he returned pleasantly. When I close my front door behind me, I like to shut out all perplexities and vexations. One's home should be one's oasis in the desert of workaday life. Don't you think so? Mrs. Layton made an indefinite reply, and their voices were lost in the general hum of conversation. The Russian attaché leaned forward that he might better see his companion's face, which was somewhat in the shadow. "'You will oblige me, will you not?' he said softly. 
A moment's silence ensued, during which the musical splash of the fountain was distinctly audible. "'I fear you must excuse me, Count,' she said at last slowly. "'I have no time to make the translation you desire.' He shrugged his shoulders indifferently. "'You have many guests tonight, madame,' he remarked carelessly, as though dismissing the previous topic. "'I recognized a face just now I had not seen in years. The world is small, is it not?' "'Too small,' assented Mrs. Bredman briefly, again absorbed in her slipper. "'It was the new British attaché,' he resumed reflectively. "'Perhaps, madame, you also remember him.' I do not think so, she replied, opening her fan, but I did not hear his name distinctly. What is it? I knew him, said Count Vladimir, in Berlin. The fan paused in its slow motion, and the lace bordering the bosom of her gown moved suddenly. Yes, she said in a carefully modulated voice. His name, madame, is Lyndhurst. The fan slipped from Mrs. Redmond's fingers and fell upon the marble floor of the conservatory. He stooped and returned it with a slight bow. The stick is broken, madame. Ivory and marble were never meant to clash. It is a pity. Mrs. Redmond rose and closed her broken fan. We will return to the ballroom, she said quietly. I am neglecting my guests. And I, he responded, also rising regretfully, was engaged for the waltz just past, also for the one now in progress. I am not often so remiss as to forget my engagements, but in your society, madame, one should not be held responsible for a lapse of memory. Shall we go? As he stepped back to allow his companion to pass, Count Vladimir unceremoniously bumped into a short, stout man, who, followed by Senator Byrd, had just entered the conservatory. My dear sir, he exclaimed apologetically, a thousand pardons. My dear sir, returned the stout gentleman promptly. I will gladly grant you ten thousand. Always go a dago one better, Bird, he remarked as they passed on. You'll find it a good rule. When I meet em, I'm overflowing with civility, just as they are, and I treat em all alike, just as I call em all dagos, regardless of nationality. You don't appreciate your social privileges, returned Senator Bird, laughing, Many of them are first-rate fellows, and you must admit they are popular. Damned popular, agreed his companion emphatically. Just look at the women, always ready to jump if they whistle. Even Mrs. Redmond continually has that Russian fox at her elbow, and I saw your pretty little red-haired girl sitting in a corner with the latest John Bull, utterly oblivious to the rest of the world. I tell you, I don't like em. Americans are good enough for me. The Honorable Joshua Grimes was a specimen of that type of United States politician so invaluable to cartoonists. Fat, bald-headed, irascible, and quick-witted, he had long ago made himself solid with his party, and for many years represented a country district to the mutual satisfaction of himself and his constituents, finding time, meanwhile, to keep an eye to his own interests and the accumulation of the almighty dollar without which, he was wont to remark, a man could do nothing in this country or any other. I don't suppose, remarked Senator Byrd, as the member of Congress paused for breath, 
I don't suppose you asked me to come in here simply to abuse the diplomatic corps. Well, no, I didn't. Fact is, Bird, I wanted to show you something I picked up just outside the ballroom door. Senator Bird responded to the greeting of a passing acquaintance and turned again to his companion. Well, he said interrogatively. Mr. Grimes produced two scraps of paper, creased and dirty, as though crumpled into a ball and thrown away, and smoothed them out carefully. They were so covered with pencil marks and erasures as to be almost illegible. He handed them to Senator Byrd without comment. Well, said the Senator after a moment's scrutiny, this seems to be a rough draft of something, I should say, but I doubt if I can make it out. I can, returned the other impassively. Thought I couldn't at first, then found I could, just like most things in life. Now listen. The two men drew closer together as the member of Congress lowered his voice. This, he said, indicating the top paper, is so erased and scratched up I cannot make anything out of it. But here, at the bottom of the second page, is a perfectly intelligible sentence. We'll meet you Thursday night and bring Roostchook papers. And that is what I wanted to show you, he added dryly. Just at this time it is both interesting and puzzling. Senator Byrd made no reply. He was examining those pieces of paper, which were fastened together in the upper left-hand corner by a bit of red, white, and blue cord. The senator touched it and looked up inquiringly. Yes, said the stout member of Congress quietly. It is the State Department symbol. Now the question is... Ah, returned the senator slowly. That is the question. He moved forward as he spoke and joined the secretary, who had been wandering about the handsome rooms, chatting with first one and then another in the genial, pleasant manner which made him universally popular. Mr. Grimes, meanwhile, twisted the tricolored cold about his finger and admired the effect. The secretary stood in the doorway watching the panorama of the ballroom and enjoying the gorgeous spectacle. The droop of his shoulders was pronounced tonight, and the lines about his eyes very apparent to the senator, as he studied him for a moment before speaking. "'That is your private secretary dancing with Isabel, is it not?' said Senator Byrd suddenly. "'I introduced him,' replied the secretary simply. "'I wanted him to enjoy himself.' "'Yes, no doubt,' returned the senator, laughing. "'Well, they don't either of them seem bored.' I hope, he added, with sudden seriousness, as the two young people were lost in the crowd, that your judgment of Mr. Lee is correct. Appearances are much against him. I hope you have made no mistake. Perhaps I have, said the secretary quietly. Time alone will tell. Ah, exclaimed Senator Byrd, here is Mrs. Redmond dancing with Dupre. Involuntarily the secretary held himself more erect, and the eyes which followed his wife's graceful form were no longer strained and weary, but met her smiling glance with one equally cheerful as he waved his hand with a slight gesture of greeting. Mr. and Mrs. Redmond always exchanged a glance and smile, even after a short separation. Monsieur Dupre was proficient in the art of waltzing, and guided his partner skillfully down the long room. He was conscious that he was the cynosure of all beholders, and much enjoyed his position. 
for Mrs. Redmond danced with a grace which made her movements the poetry of motion. The fiery crescent shone brilliantly against her dark hair, while the glowing jewels about her waist added a touch of living color indescribably effective. No wonder the secretary's eyes followed his wife as long as she was visible, and no wonder the Honorable Cecil Lyndhurst, lounging in an opposite doorway, stared in a manner not wholly consistent with good breeding. That gentleman, however, slowly retired to a smoking-room, where he fixed himself a rather stiff brandy and soda. The Khedive's opals, he ejaculated as he pressed the siphon. By Jove, the Khedive's opals. End of chapter 5